0: Today, we are wrapping up our six-part series called Questions Jesus Asked. Questions Jesus Asked. A few weeks ago, I preached a sermon, and I said, this sermon is the most important question that Jesus asked. And that question was, who do you say that I am? How many of y'all were here for that sermon? If you weren't, you got to go online check it out. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Because that's the most important question that you can answer when Jesus asks asks any question. That's the most important question. Today we're going to explore possibly the most famous question that Jesus asked. And the reason it's the most famous is because it ties into the two most important commandments that Jesus ever uttered and that have been ever uttered in the Word of God. So what I'm going to do is dive right into the text. It's going to be a familiar text to many of you. Uh, But what I want to do then is break it out and and have us deep dive into the question that Jesus asked. So we're going to start with Luke chapter 10, verse 25 says this, behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So what we're getting ready to see is a volley of questions back and forth. The lawyer says, what about this? And Jesus says, well, what about that? So he said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, what does the law say? So the lawyer answered and said, well, the law says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replied to the lawyer and said, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you'll have eternal life. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, and you will live. But the lawyer, it says, wanted to justify himself. How many of y'all ever want to justify yourself? Especially when you hear the word of God coming at you, you go, but yeah, but yeah, let me find a way to get around that. The lawyer wanted to justify himself to Jesus and said, who is my neighbor? Can I just focus in on that, that, that word? Can I just get a fine definition of that word? Who is my neighbor? Jesus answers the question with his most famous parable. He says this. Jesus answered, verse 30, and says, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing. They wounded him. They departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came along down the road. He saw the man. He passed by on the other side. Then a Levite, another religious leader, came along. He arrived at the place, looked, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. So, He went, bandaged the man's wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. Verse 35. On the next day, in other words, he stayed there with him overnight. He took care of this guy all night. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, two days' wages, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to the innkeeper, take care of this man. And whatever more you spend, Didn't put a limit on it. Whatever more you spend, however long it takes to heal this guy, however long it takes for this guy to get back on his feet, whatever more you spend, when I come back, I'll repay you for that. Then Jesus turns to the lawyer and says, So, which of these three do you think was neighbor to the man who fell among the thieves? And, of course, the lawyer says, he who showed mercy on him. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So if I were going to summarize Jesus' question that he asks in this exchange with the lawyer, I would summarize it like this. Who are you called to love? Who are you called to love? Let's take a moment. Let's pray. God, your love is so strong It reaches us when we are on the side of the road of life. You reach down and pick us up. You heal us. You repair us. You restore us. You draw us all the way into your love. And then you call us to go and do likewise. I pray that this sermon today, I pray that your word would go forth and absolutely penetrate our hearts, transform our minds draw us into deep relationship with you and a deep relationship with one another and, and into deep relationship with our neighbors. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. There was a case recently in Canada where there were these two parties. It was a civil case. It wasn't a criminal matter. It was a civil case where there was one party that sold a huge amounts, tons and tons of grain to another party. There was a party that bought the grain, and then there was a party that sold the grain. And over the years, these two parties had developed the habit of exchanging contracts via text message. So one party would, uh, the the buyer, would draw up a contract, sign it, take a picture of it, text it to the seller, and say, please please confirm the the contract. And then the seller would, would text back and say, okay, sounds good, all good. And, and that's how they transacted business for, for many, many years. Now, hundreds of thousands of dollars in these transactions, and they had just gotten so accustomed to this pattern between the two of them that it was very informal. One day, the buyer wanted to buy some grain, several, several tons of grain, about $80,000 worth of grain. And so he texts the seller and says, hey, I drew up a contract. I've signed it. Here's a picture of it. Is this good with you and instead of writing a text back the buyer simply texted this maybe you've seen this before he just texted back a thumbs up so the buyer took that to mean contract confirmed we're good to go so the buyer went about his business making other transactions and other contracts based on his expectation that the seller was going to sell him this grain at this amount. Well, over the course of time, the amount of grain, the the cost of grain changed. And And the seller decided, you know what, I don't really want to sell it at the price that I agreed to. So when the buyer said, hey, you owe me all this grain, the seller said, oh, we don't have a contract. And the buyer said, yeah, yeah, we do have a contract. I texted you the contract, and then you texted me back a thumbs up. And the, and, and the seller said, well, a thumbs up is, is not a signature. The law requires that you have a signature. And I just sent you a, an emoji, and that's not a contract. And the buyer goes, well, it seems like a contract to me. I mean, I mean, we've been doing this for a long time. And the, buyer, and the seller says, no, 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 we're not going to do it. So they go to court. So the question the judge has is how broadly – do I define the term signature? It, it requires a signature to have a contract of this size, but how broadly do I define the term? Like normally, a signature would be, you know, you sign your whole name. But, but these two parties, sometimes he just texts back and says, sounds good, okay, all good. So is an, a thumbs-up emoji a signature or not? Oh, man, we got a split court over here. The judge said, under these circumstances, the emoji constitutes a signature. You have affirmed consent. You owe this man $82,000. Because the court said, under this circumstance, I want to interpret the term signature as broadly as is necessary to accomplish justice in this matter. When Jesus and the lawyer are talking, the lawyer is saying, how broadly do we have to interpret this word neighbor. Because I want it to be a narrow definition. I want neighbor to only be the people that I really want to love. In fact, the, if, if it's up to me, neighbor should mean people who love me. Because, you know, it's easy to love people who love you. So the lawyer says, okay, I just want, a justifying himself, I want a strict construction of this word neighbor. Now, This debate was not new to the time of Jesus. This debate had been going on among rabbis and among Jewish scholars for a very long time. And the debate is interesting, is is premised on the teachings of the Torah, the Old Testament. Because in Leviticus 19, it says this. here's, Here's Leviticus 19, 18. It says this. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. Notice that. But love your neighbor as yourself. So the so the lawyer says, This is my anchor verse. This is the verse that I want to hang my hat on because clearly this verse implies that neighbor is somebody from my own people. This is what is called the kinship theory. The kinship theory. Here's the kinship theory. This is the this is the theory the lawyer wanted. The kinship theory is that the neighbor based on Leviticus 19:18, means any person from your own religion, your own culture, your own political party, or your own ethnic identity. In other words, just the people that are already my people, my tribe, my kinfolk. That, that's who I am called to love. But there was another school of thought in the time of Jesus that had a more expansive picture of what the word neighbor meant. If you go Leviticus 19, you go just a little bit further down to verse 33. It says this. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. So this is a broader definition of neighbor. It's just not just your people, it's strangers. So this gives rise to the stranger theory. The stranger theory. The stranger theory is, if you want to put up that next slide, Neighbor includes foreigners, immigrants, aliens, and strangers. So these are, the two, these are the two theories that the lawyer comes to Jesus with and says, one text seems to imply neighbor is my people. Another text seems to be a little more broad. But what do you say, Jesus? Which one do you choose? And instead of just saying which one he chooses, Jesus tells a story and inserted into the story for the person of neighbor, he inserts a Samaritan. Now, here's the thing about a Samaritan. This was a radical, surprising move that Jesus made in this debate because a Samaritan was certainly not seen as a brother. A Samaritan was not really even seen just as a stranger. A Samaritan was considered to be an adversary an antagonist, an opponent in first century Jerusalem, an enemy. And nobody up to this point had interpreted the passage to include an enemy. There could be my folk, my kinfolk, my tribe, or friendly strangers, but nobody had ever said you need to include in that love your neighbor. Nobody had ever interpreted neighbor to mean an enemy, somebody who is opposed to you. Now, if you grew up in church, you probably heard that Jews and Samaritans were at odds with each other, but I've been doing some research on this, and it's a little deeper than I even knew. For over 500 years, Samaritans and Jews had been opposed to each other, not in just a I don't like you kind of way, but in, in a real, bloody, antagonistic kind of way. So, so for 500 years, they hated each other's religion, they hated each other's culture, they hated each other's politics, they each built separate temples the Samaritans had tried to forcibly halt the Jews building their temple. The Jews returned the favor, favor by going up to Samaria, destroying the Samaritan temple. Then the, then the Samaritans came down to the Jewish temple, according to Josephus, in about 6 AD, and started throwing dead dead the, the bones of dead people into the temple uh, to defile the Jewish temple during Passover. Then the Romans decided this is not good, and they went up and massacred a bunch of Samaritans. Then the Samaritans responded by attacking Galileans on their way up to Galilee. Then the Galileans responded by counterattacking. There was this deep-seated animosity between these two parties. Some rabbis would say that to eat the bread of Samaritans was to eat the flesh of pigs, or to marry a Samaritan was to lie with a beast and that the Samaritans were not to be viewed as a nation, but rather as a pack of dogs or a herd of swine. It was a vicious cycle of revenge and reprisal between these two sworn enemies. And Jesus is saying, that's who I want you to love. Man, if I'm the lawyer, I'm like, can we get a different jury pool here? Like, I'm supposed to love those who are antagonistic towards me? Not not just people I don't know, but people who are actively opposing me. Jesus says, don't just love people who aren't like you. Love people who don't like you. So the question is, who is your neighbor? Who is Jesus calling you to love? Because he's saying, I want you to love those who oppose you. I want you to love those who oppress you. I want you to love those who defame you. I want you to love those who defy you. I-, I want you to love people who you consider to be your antagonist. I want you to love your opponent. I want you to love your enemy. And in case he didn't get the point of cross, he, a- he-, he actually refines it in Matthew five forty three. He says this, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. So not just... He doesn't embrace just the brother, the, the, the kinship theory or the stranger theory. For Jesus, here's what a neighbor is. Neighbor is those who love you, those who hate you, those who support you, those who oppose you, those who help you, those who harm you. Love them all, he said, as yourself. Who is your neighbor? Who has hurt you? Who has gotten under your skin? Who do you want to attack on Facebook? Maybe you don't do it. Who are you thinking about? Who do you not like? Who do you not understand? Who can you not believe they think that or say that or act that way? For you. Who is that for you? Because Jesus says, I want you to love them. That's neighbor love. And when he says love, he's not just talking about an abstract, fluffy concept. He's not just saying, you know, just kind of generally love kind of in the back of your heart, in the back of your mind. He gives us in this story concrete, absolute characteristics of what it means to actually love someone. Let's go back to verse 33. Here's here's 33. He says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw the man, number one, he had compassion. He had compassion. So to love someone actually means to have genuine compassion. Genuine compassion. Now, the question that you and I might ask is, how do I develop genuine compassion for someone that I don't have genuine compassion for? H- how do I get there? Have any of you ever had a a bad boss? If you work for one family church, please just not. Um, <laughs> but in other places. Um, If you've ever had a bad boss, I've had so many good bosses in my life. I've had so many good employers in my life, people that I've worked for that I just learned so much for. But one time I had a bad boss who shall remain unnamed for now and eternity. And this, and this, and this bad boss about drove my life insane. messed up my life. Like, would, I mean, no joke, would make me feel sick to my stomach because this boss was so mean. And was so harsh and was so unkind and was so unfair and put me in so many bad situations and made my life so bad. And at that time, I didn't feel like I could leave that job because I needed that job. And I had this boss that was just so bad. And so I hate, I, did I almost say, I said, I (laughs) didn't like that boss. Children we don't say hate, right? Okay. I didn't appreciate that boss. And I caught, I mean, literally like, like it made, it made me, you know, like, um, I would get, I would literally get sick, sick to my stomach. And so one time I called a friend of mine and I was like, dude, I like, um, someday I want to be a pastor. And if I kill this boss, then that messes up my plan, my career plan. I need help because I'm, like, dying with this boss, right? And my friend pointed me to uh, a passage of Scripture. That's a good friend who goes, let me, I got a Scripture for you. He pointed me to Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, where Jesus says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Okay, all right, we got that. But then he tells you how. Here's how. Number one, do good to those who hate you. Number two, bless those who curse you. Number three, pray for those who despitefully use you. If you want to develop genuine compassion for someone, I would do it in reverse order. Start with prayer. Start with prayer. Pray for that person. Then bless them. The word bless is is the same word where we get the word eulogy. It means to speak good of them. Find something about that person that you can compliment, something about them, because surely there's something good, right? Right? nice shoes you know whatever it is right you got to find something speak good of them right and then and then do good to them so i started with prayer and i got to tell you when i started my prayer life for this boss started i was praying psalm 55 i was praying let death take my enemies by surprise o lord i was praying the scripture bash in the teeth of the children of mine enemies o lord I mean, we have to start somewhere, people. But I'm going to tell you, and my wife can vouch. Over time, I began to, (laughs) like years, no. uh, Over time, I began to develop um, a genuine compassion for this person who caused me so much harm. Because I began to experience, as, as I'm praying for this person, I began to see them the way God sees them. I began to see their brokenness. I began to see their pain. I began to see the hurt that they were carrying and they were striking out at everybody else. Now, I didn't keep working for that boss. The scripture doesn't call you to remain under oppression. But the way to get free from oppression is to pray for that person, have compassion on them, and then do good to them. And the scripture says coals of fire will come upon them, meaning meaning justice and judgment will come upon them. And let God do that. You don't have to do that. So I began to pray for that person, and then I began to speak good of that person. I don't know if I've ever gotten to doing good for the person, but we're still, we still have time. Amen. When Dr. King preached, Dr. Martin Luther King preached this, this passage, he said, the first question, this is a quote from his sermon, the first question, which the priest and the Levite asked, is if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? He said, but the good Samaritan reversed the question and asked, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? In other words, it was just a difference in compassion. One person's heart was about themselves. The other person's heart was about somebody else. So here's my challenge to you, church. If you want to have love like Jesus, pray for those who despise you. Pray for those who have harmed you. Pray for those who have hurt you. Pray for those who have reviled you. Pray for those who have, have betrayed you. Spend some time, because in, I don't have time to get into all of it, but Jesus said, so that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. That's why you pray for them. Because what, what, what he's saying in that passage is, because that is a, is, a, is a creature of God made in God's image. God loves that person just as much as he loves you. You might be righteous and they might be terrible, but he loves that person just as much as he loves you. So if you want to be the children of your Father in heaven, pray for those who harm you. Okay. So genuine compassion is key number one, but he takes it deeper in this story. Verse 34 says, so the man, the Samaritan, went to the man who was hurt, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. So the first step is genuine compassion. The second step is sacrificial service. Notice that he says his own animal. He took him to an end. He sacrificed time. He sacrificed money. He sacrificed uh, his his attention, his energy. Wherever he was going, he paused and said, I'm going to take care of this person. I'm going to sacrifice for somebody else. In fact, I'm going to sacrifice for somebody who probably wouldn't sacrifice for me. On September 10, 1948, 75 years ago today actually, a young man named Garfield McConnell Langhorn was born in Cumberland, Virginia, in the segregated south. This is a young man that grew up in church. He was an usher at the First Baptist Church there. Everybody knew him as, as having a, a really gregarious smile and a really open heart, a, a sweet soul, and a, and a generous spirit. He grew up hearing this story. He, he, he grew up hearing the story of, of Jesus saying, love your neighbor as yourself. He graduated from Riverhead High School in 1967, and he joined the military as a radio operator. On January 15, 1969, this young man's uh, platoon was sent into an area of enemy fire. And there were a number of casualties. He, he and two other uh, soldiers went into this area. There were a number of men that were, um, that were, that were wounded. And he and these other soldiers began to, to care for these men. They, their perimeter got surrounded they started receiving heavy artillery fire and, 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 and gunfire from, from those around them. And then a grenade, an enemy grenade, came into the midst. And according to the military records, Garfield Langhorn immediately and unhesitatingly jumped on that grenade and absorbed the shock, absorbed the explosion, gave his life to a group of men that he had never met, some of whom very likely would not have given their life for him. He received uh, the, the highest military decoration, the Medal of Honor. It says the military said by sacrificing himself, he saved the lives of his comrades and was awarded America's highest military decoration, the Medal of Honor for his conspicuous gallantry in action at the risk of his life and beyond the call of duty. This is a picture of many pictures of someone who says, I've, I've learned what it means to have, to, to have genuine compassion, but I'm going to move the compassion from my heart to my hands. I'm going to actually take a moment and I'm going to sacrifice for somebody else. And, and this sacrifice is, is just beyond the pale. It's just beyond the call of duty. The question for us today is, what are we willing to sacrifice? Jesus shows us the picture of the Samaritan. And the Samaritan found someone on the side of the road. And the Samaritan was willing to sacrifice his time and his resources and his, his, his finances for this individual. And Jesus is saying, how do you love someone? Not just by compassion, not just in your heart, but by what you do. Your willingness to serve somebody. There's no doubt in my mind. I don't, I don't, I don't want to bag on the priest and the Levite. There's no doubt in my mind that they would have said, man, that person is worthy of compassion. They would have said that. They may have thought that. It's not in the text. We don't know. But they're a priest. They're a Levite. These are, these are people who have given themselves to the study of Scripture. And in my mind, their heart probably went, there's a person in need, but there's too great of a risk for me. I'm not going to go near them. I'm going to go the other side. I, there's just too much there. The Samaritan is the one that allowed his compassion. Scripture says he was moved with compassion. The compassion actually drew him to the side of the road. The question for you today is, where is God calling you to serve? Where is he calling you to serve somebody? Maybe it's somebody on your job maybe it's somebody at your work maybe it's somebody in the community maybe maybe you maybe you start to think and shape your career and your education towards serving others maybe you maybe a portion of your business is dedicated to serving those in need maybe you get creative they call it they call it a redemptive entrepreneurship where you actually take a portion of the proceeds of your of your, um, of your business and, and serve somebody, serve some agency. with. you just begin to shape your life around the concept that I am called primarily to love God and to love my neighbor. And I'm going to shape my life because that is the ultimate calling of God upon my life is to love my neighbor as myself through sacrificial service. He was moved with compassion. He served sacrificially. And then this is where it ends in verse 35. On the next day, when the man departed, he took out two days' wages, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to the innkeeper, take care of him. And this is the part that kills me. Whatever more you spend. Think about that. Whatever it takes. This is somebody he's never met. And this is someone who is his cultural, religious, political antagonist. And he tells the innkeeper, whatever it costs to take care of this person, please take care of them. I will come back and cover the cost of that no matter what it is. Whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay. He moves from genuine compassion to sacrificial service to what I'm calling extravagant generosity. Extravagant generosity. This is when you say, look, I'm here to pour out. My life is about pouring out for the benefit of others. My life is about pouring out to those in need. My life is about pouring out to anybody who is struggling and needs my help. That is the shape of love. That is the picture of Jesus. That is what I am called to do. If you'll notice, and I'm going to close with this. If you'll notice, the Samaritan does three things. Number one, he recognizes the need. He sees the need and he recognizes the need. That's number one. And when he recognizes the need, his heart's filled with compassion. Number two, it said he goes to repair the need. He goes and he pours oil and wine upon the the man who is wounded. This is immediate repair. This is an emergency situation that he's going to address right now. And he could have stopped there and we would have all gone, man, that was awesome. The story could have so easily ended there. And we would have gone, praise God, that was great sacrifice. Right? But he took it one step further. He didn't just recognize the need. He didn't just repair the need. He sought to restore the individual to the position that he would have been in, but for the injustice that happened to him. He said, I want to, I want to, I'll do whatever it takes to bring this person back into wholeness and completeness. I want total healing. I don't want to just patch up the wounds. I want to bring total healing. You know, God is calling us to be a a place of restoration where we don't just recognize needs church and we don't come and just slap band-aids on needs. God is calling us as a church and calling his people and calling you individually and us as a church to be a restorer, to be a restorer of walls, to rebuild the ancient walls, to actually create a world where injustice is remedied. It's not just noted. it's It's not just called out, but we're actually called to be restorers, to make whole. The reason we support the, the agencies that we support, the, the people that we support, in Excelsis Ministries, the, the homeless ministry down at our Shaw campus, they're seeking to make people whole. They're seeking to restore people to health through food, through homes, through counseling. Stepping into the light, shelter. Our brothers are stepping into the light that are watching right now. Stepping into the light is designed to bring restoration to your soul, to bring wholeness. To put you back on a path that God had you on. To help you fulfill your calling and your potential. The FAM, one of our major organizations. It's to, to bring restoration. We just, by the way, we just closed on our 105th home, by the way, in, the, in two years. But, but the aim is, is not just to recognize, not just to repair, but to restore. To put people in a position that they would have been in, but for the injustice that occurred to them. That's the the mission of Jesus. Avenues Counseling, Crossroads Counseling, these agencies that we support. What are they doing? They're seeking to restore people's health, restore their mental health, restore their peace, restore their joy, restore their equilibrium, bring them back to to Health Kikiri School in Uganda, the children in Ghana. The groups that we support, the whole idea of following Jesus is that we become like Jesus, is that we do the things that Jesus did. And can I tell you today, as I'm I'm reading this passage this week and I'm studying this passage, sometimes I'm like, man, I'm more like the priest or the Levite. And then sometimes I go, man, but sometimes I'm kind of like the Samaritan. Sometimes I do okay. Sometimes I have genuine compassion. Sometimes I sacrifice. Sometimes I'm generous, right? But the truth is this. You know, all of our story, it begins with us being on the side of the road. That's where we really are. That's that's where Jesus found us. You see, Jesus was our good Samaritan. He had genuine compassion on us when we were enemies of God. When we were were fighting God, when we were running and opposing God, Jesus was coming after us with his generosity, with his compassion. The scripture says that Jesus came to serve God. Not to be served. He came for sacrificial service to you. He came to serve you. And ultimately, extravagant generosity. What did he give? Everything. All of it. He gave it for you. And that love that Jesus gave to us when we were broken and wounded by the side of the road is the love that he fills us with today. This is the love that he fills us with as a church. And he says, last verse, verse 37, he says, Go and do likewise. Pour out love. Pour out generosity. Pour out kindness and peace and justice. Be a church that brings the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Be my hands and feet. Go forth and do likewise. Church, we're called to love those who are For us and against us. Those who help us, those who harm us. Those who support us, those who oppose us. We are called to go out and bring the love of Jesus to each and every person we meet. I just just love our mission. It's the mission of Jesus. We are called to bring people and God together in love. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. Your love is so rich when we were wounded and broken you picked us up on the side of the road you took care of us you gave it all for us and now you call us Lord to be your hands and feet I pray that you would inspire us and encourage us to find those individuals in our lives that normally we would just avoid help us to love them with true love, with true compassion with true service, with true generosity we thank you, Father, for who you are, for loving us so deeply. We return that love to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen.